The Christian Andriacchio case was prematurely closed by authorities, but many questions remain. Come behind the curtain and follow private investigator Sheila Waisaki as she uncovers the truth about what happened to Christian. This is Without Warning. Warning, the following episode contains details about sexual violence and elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. The last two episodes have been about how the case started from the 911 call to the crime scene. The added bonus was hearing from Whitley's spokesperson, Joel, who had real insight on what Whitley is saying. I've said over and over in my groups that this audio is a wealth of investigative information. Listen to it again and again. After the roundtable with Culpable, Ray, Josh, Lori, and I continued the conversation. We touched on a variety of subjects. Later, I will go in-depth on each subject, the case file being released, the role of Cassie Coleman, Jim Hood, and others. This case is a set of circumstances from beginning to end. Either they work or they don't work. You can't cherry pick the information for a different outcome. If they don't make sense together, they don't make sense at all. We start with Lori Morrison, private investigator, talking about the DNA sample on the gun. The fact that um, Cassie Coleman deferred to the AG about the the DNA um, and the leaked meeting where we learned that Gypsy said the sample was too small and would be consumed by the testing. If the case is closed, why would that matter? I don't see any logical reason not to have it tested at this point because they've given you really no hope that they're going to reopen things, correct? Yeah, they've, I mean, from our perspective, it doesn't look like they'll ever reopen it. And the whole, you know, the whole DNA discussion as far as, you know, Bilbo refusing and, and talking about CODIS. And we've talked about how there that really shouldn't have been an issue, that if they were saying it was a suicide, what would it matter whether it was CODIS or not? There also was no one in this, and I guess you'd say the people of interest, that group that should show up in CODIS except for possibly Hayes. So um, that whole argument never really made sense. And then, of course, we didn't know anything about gypsies saying this about the, the small sample and the reason why they didn't release it. We were just given, until the, the meeting was leaked, we were just given the answer that they didn't really know where the, the sample was and thought that it was out of state and then quit communicating with us about it at all. Okay, they thought it was out of state because they thought one of the people had sent it off for testing? Why else would it be not in their custody? Well, Roger Wade never, this was through email, and he just, when I sent an email requesting for them to release it to an outside lab for testing, his response was, um, is our understanding the sample is out of state in a lab? And so I checked to make sure that it was at the crime lab, verified it was there, sent him a message back saying, no, it's in Pearl, or I think it's either Pearl or Petal, where your crime lab is. And then he never responded back. And that was the last email, actually, that I ever got from him. So the chain of custody is not something he was 
keeping very good track of? Right. I mean, I don't know whether he was just telling me this, not knowing that I would know where it was or would be able to verify where it was or whether he was just misinformed. Um, You know, from my understanding, it's never left the crime lab. It's always been there. Do you worry about retaliation of all of a sudden all the evidence goes away? I mean, you know, I worry when we sit here talking about a ballistics test, I'm afraid that at some point they're going to go, oh, well, we don't have the projectile, you know, that we was a closed case and we did away with all the evidence. I spoke to an attorney from Alabama this past week, and he was saying, you know, how that even talking about the case file being released, that he didn't understand why the case file was released or anything, you know, was released because he said it's not like they didn't know that you weren't fighting to get this case reopened. It would be different if the case had been sitting there dormant for 10 years, but there's been controversy and conflict surrounding this case really from the beginning. And so, you know, he said that that with them releasing it, that he felt like it was in an effort to sabotage further prosecution of the case. And who is Roger Wade? He is one of the um, the investigators in the Public Integrity Unit. He was he and Gypsy Ward were the two assigned to Christian's case, but Gypsy kind of took point. He was rather more of a passive role from kind of how I took it. He was the one who had to communicate with me. Gypsy would never communicate with me. He was kind of the spokesperson for the investigators. You had mentioned uh, in a previous discussion that the bullet was flattened in a way that that type of ammunition typically isn't unless it would maybe strike a very, very hard substance or surface. To me, that has a lot of implications in a lot of different directions. What do you make of that? I mean, I don't think there was anything in that bathroom that it could have hit to deform it that way. I mean, what in the bathroom is denser than lead? I mean, it's just drywall, wood, and fiberglass. I mean, there's nothing in it that can a bullet can strike that's denser than the bullet itself and flatten it and stop it dead in its tracks. And then, you know, ricochet. doesn't ricochet off wood and it doesn't ricochet off fiberglass either. And this was the bullet that... No testing had been done on for any kind of tissue, blood, um, like you said, sheetrock, any kind of fiberglass. Never tested anything on that bullet. I mean, it's if they even still have it. Uh, I assume they put it in a bag somewhere, and that's where it sat the whole time. So you've seen pictures of it, though? Yeah. And the same with the gun. Have you seen pictures of that? Yeah, we've seen pictures of the gun and pictures of the casing. And I know you described the gun as being a lot cleaner than you would have expected it to be. Yeah. For someone who who had shot themselves in the head. It was clean, but it was also like manually clean because they found no traces of blood on it at all. Like not that somebody just, you know, wiped blood off, but somebody cleaned it with an agent that removed any trace of there ever being a chance that blood could be found on it anywhere. Well, either that or it wasn't the gun used. Yeah. One or the, you know, one or the other. And that includes in the barrel, too. Like, not just the outside of the gun, like, the inside, the work, like, in the barrel, someone had to have cleaned, taken the entire gun apart and cleaned it manually to remove any trace of blood and fingerprints. And this is, this doesn't sound like something you can do in five or ten minutes, dissembling a weapon, cleaning it, and putting it back together. How long would something like that take? 
I mean, if you really knew what you were doing, do like a standard, you know, clean a 1911, it probably wouldn't take too long. But that doesn't include using something that is going to strip all the grease off of the gun as well. I mean, I would assume if you're going to clean the gun in a way that's going to remove any trace of blood ever being present on the gun, use some sort of cleaning agent that is also going to strip the grease from the gun, which it's then going to have to be re-greased. Or it's easier just to swap out a gun. Yeah. So, I mean, it's unlikely that that gun was used, which we would know for a fact if they had tested the bullet. Who has the bullet right now, Ray? Uh, MPD. Now, you said that the ammunition was Christian's, though. I mean, it was Black Talon, and he did have a box of Black Talons. I mean, I would assume it was his. That's what was found in the bathtub. Like, that's the projectile that was found. Whether that's what was used, I, you said I don't know. That brand had been discontinued, so it's not like a lot of people would have that in their possession. Yeah, and I mean, it had, had been discontinued in 1993, so it was over 10 years. Well, especially in that group of boys, kids that hung out together, they all seemed to be into guns because they you know, posted pictures of them on social media. I know Hayes seemed to be into guns. Now, whether he had them, I don't know, but he there were a lot of pictures on his social media before they were taken down of him with guns. There were pictures on Dylan's social media with him holding a gun and having guns. Jet talks about having guns. So, I mean, I think that out of the three or four or five people that were probably there gun night, they probably had quite the collection of guns among them. And a forty five isn't like an uncommon gun either. That's pretty common. I mean, it's pretty popular, actually, just because of what it is. I mean, I, I think it's pretty common for, I'm not going to say every single household in Mississippi has a forty five, but I would say out of the guns that most people have, it's going to be a forty five, a forty, or a 9 millimeter. Something that's been really interesting to me is to see how many of the players really seem to be listening based on them reaching out to you or based on other postings that you're seeing on social media or that people are capturing and sending to you. Why do you think that is? The players as far as just the people of interest or their families or just everybody? Yeah, the, the larger group. Well, I mean, I think that, of course, they're they're concerned about what information. I'm not saying, you know, rightfully so. I'm sure they're all listening to the podcast. As a matter of fact, I'd almost guarantee it just because of, like, again, their reaction that happens after a new episode comes out. I think that they don't really know what we have and what we don't have. And so this is a way to kind of determine their game plan is by seeing what we're putting out. And I think, you know, of course, they use that also as a way to retaliate against us by then taking some of the information and trying to persuade people that, our information is either dishonest or it's not accurate or whatever the case may be. And they use whatever method that they can, whether that's just to use some bogus, oh, we've got this expert, but they never say who the expert is. They never give anybody's credentials or pulling off something off Google and saying, well, here, this is what this says. And then if anyone tries to discredit what they're saying or give evidence that what they're saying is not accurate, well, then they either ban you, mute you, block you, or either attack you, you know, and there's no, there's no reasoning. Um, I mean, it's obvious that they 
have only one mindset, no matter what you show them or tell them, you know, that's what it's going to be. Why do you think that when the case file was finally released, you've noted there are parts missing? You know that you have sent either emails or correspondence in other forms that are not there. So does that make you concerned that there are other things not there? Well, yes, because I think that they're treating the public like they treated the grand jury. They're cherry-picking and and trying to force a narrative. And so they left out the things that would cause, would be difficult for them to explain away. You know, I think the slides and the presentation of what they showed the grand jury when it comes to what they showed of Knox and Arden, those slides are blank. I think they say that you can click on them, but you can't see what information is there. So who knows what's there? You know, whether it's accurate, I'm sure it's incomplete. The jurors that I've spoken to have said that they never mentioned rigor, period. That was never discussed with them. So we know they left that out. The information that they gave them about the um, lividity was inaccurate. And whether that's just because they didn't know and they, or whether that was intentional, but the information that was given to them wasn't correct. And then just all the different items or documentation that I know that I sent and we know they have because we gave them access to the Dropbox. And so everything was in the Dropbox that we had. And so they can't say they didn't have it. And that's not anything that would question, raise questions about it being not being a suicide and being a homicide. That information's left out. So I, I think that, again, it's just they're trying to mislead the public now, not just the grand jury. There is an index, but, I mean, it just it's just a list of the documents that are in there, which, I mean, I guess is the definition of an index, but it doesn't really doesn't give any more detail than the names of the files because some of the files are named one thing. Like, I think there's, a pic, there's several pictures, copies of pictures of, like, Dylan in the bank like the surveillance video that caught Dylan in the bank and they're named like Andriacchio 1 or Andriacchio 2 or just some, you know, random thing, like just some random word. And the majority of them are just copies of other files. So even though you look at the file and it looks like there's a lot of files in it, a good portion of them are copies of files or like certain portions of another report taken out and put into this one file so it doesn't have the whole report. And it's just like you have like the entire cell phone extractions in there, but then they've gone a step further and cherry pick certain messages out and put them in their own file. So, I mean, it's things like that where it's just redundant information for the sake of, I guess, taking things out of context and artificially inflating the size of it so they can say, We've done this much work. We have over 4,000 pages in this file. But they don't mention that, you know, 3,600 of those pages are cell phone extractions. And out of those 3,600, you know, probably 3,000 of them or even more than that is just trash data that comes stock on a phone. So they like to say we've done all this work and we put this much time into it. And you can see it because look at the size of this file. When the size of the file is almost all trash, it's just all just data that is on every single phone, like icons, 
like the phone icon when or the, your contacts icon or just random data that would be on a normal phone so it can function. The software, your apps and stuff like that that don't hold any information that has anything to do with the case at all. Well, I actually have never looked at the case file. So my information comes from Josh telling, like me asking Josh, well, what did this say? Because I just refused to even look at the case file. And, and are either getting, I guess, other people to say, well, look and see if this is in there. And I just think that with the cell, from what I have been told, the text messages, there's been text messages that have been redacted, or I guess is what you would say, or they've been taken out, um, messages that would call into question Whitley's character motives, messages between Christian and Whitley's mother, you know, Whitley's mother actually warning Christian to be careful with Whitley because she'll turn people against, you know, cause conflict among family members in order to turn people against each other. And she says, you know, she's done that with me. You know, there's multiple text messages about things that would be very embarrassing to Whitley. And that's not talking about you know, I'm not talk, speaking of videos or pictures. I'm talking about actual text messages that would be information that would be damaging to her. There's even text message of one of the, I guess you'd say, suicidal texts that Christian supposedly sent that they took out the message that was the one she sent before where she's actually initiating the conversation about suicide. They take that message out where it looks like he is the one who just is out of the blue saying, you know, well, hey, you know, why don't we go do this? I mean, she's the one who initiates it by saying we're all living to die, blah, 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 whatever she said. His response is, well, if you feel that way, then let's just go do it. You know, well, we don't know how he said that. Was he joking and saying, oh, hey, you think that? Well, come on, let's go do it. Or was he serious or what? I mean, we don't know kind of off the subject, but it brought to mind this very thing. I was watching a comedian the other night, and he was talking about the Me Too movement, and he said, um, you know, it's, it's all about whether or not you got a good read or not. He said, because in reality, you can have this girl who's saying, you know, saying, oh, no, don't do that, laughing, flirting, whatever, but you get a bad read in court, and it says, no, stop, don't do that, and it's a totally different context, and that's the bad thing with text messages is you don't know know, you know, how it's being said. Is it being said jokingly? Is it being said seriously? Is it, you know, you don't know the context. That's a great point. It is. And I wonder, too, was there any attempt to take any of all of this information and put it into any type of narrative? This, and what I mean by that is, we see this evidence and this evidence and this evidence that supports this, or was it just all, here it is? They don't ever put any, they never give like a a single narrative that encompasses all the evidence. They have a bad habit of having tunnel vision where they look at one single piece of evidence and they make a theory for that piece of evidence. And then they'll look at another piece of evidence and make a theory for that piece of evidence. So you have all of this evidence and they end up with 30 different theories and all of them contradict each other because, I mean, they're explaining, they're making theories for each individual piece instead of one theory that is cohesive and includes everything and makes everything a possibility. And there's not a single theory that they've submitted yet that doesn't contradict 
other major pieces of evidence, like the time of death, for instance. They have never been able to explain that. And you're talking about scientific evidence. Yeah. They're not claiming the evidence is wrong. They're just shrugging their shoulders and saying, eh, we don't know why that doesn't fit. Or just, coming up with some weird theory of why, how to explain it, you know, which is really biz- a bizarre theory that is, again, so kind of out of the realm of possibility that you're trying to say that all these different weird, bizarre events happened just to make this a suicide. And even then, you still can't explain away rigor. Um, you know, I think that's their biggest problem. That's and what explaining, they, never they they don't touch that with a ten foot pole, and I think they didn't give it to the uh, grand jury and just totally left it out because how I mean how can you spin that? I mean, oh, we turned the air conditioning on to sub zero so that you know his body cooled quicker. I mean, you know, there's no explanation of getting around that, and you know we've kind of jumping over to the placement of the gun and the, it being put on safety. You know, I think Arrington kind of threw out in that leaked meeting, oh, well, one of the um, investigators said that they put it on safety. And then he came back, I think, later on and said, well, nobody will admit it. Well, I actually had somebody to call me two nights ago, and she said that she actually knew all the investigators that were there that actually were there functioning as of the three. And she said she had personally spoke in the last, this past week, with all three of them. And they all three denied that they put that gun on safety and they said Thompson even told her when I arrived the gun was in the position it was in and it was decocked and no one none of none of the three gave any indication that they thought that someone put that gun on safety and then stuck it back in the position it was in so you know again they're trying to force a narrative but yet they can't give us a name of who told you this you know if you notice if they say just like Cassie said about the grand jurors well in her statement well i've spoken to a grand juror and they say that everything was presented appropriately well number one how do you know if it was presented appropriately if you weren't don't know what information you weren't given and number two okay give me the name i got all 15 names and i've talked to we've either attempted we've attempted to talk to all 15 five of them i have on record so Give me the name, because I'd like to know, but, you know, I still have yet to have a name given. This back and forth on somebody else did it, we have actual eyewitness, instead of, you know, pulling something out of the air, go with the facts. That's my biggest problem also with the the gun and the bullet. Like you said, in order to get a suicide theory, it has to be a JFK bullet. And it isn't. Bullets are not smart. They don't turn right and turn left. They go, as Alina Burroughs says, they go in the direction that you're pointing, period. I think it's interesting to note, too, that Dylan, when he called 911, gave the wrong address. He was, I assume, had been visiting the apartment for several weeks, several months. So he is familiar with the area. Like you've said before, it's not a big town. So I'm, I'm just interested in how he could not know how to direct them where, where this had occurred. 
At the beginning of the investigation, Ray reached out to a gun shop owner who offered to help with a former police officer on gathering information. Josh is referring to those individuals. Another interesting thing is in that interview, he mentions he goes upstairs to brush his teeth. And I mean, a place that you, I mean, I would assume he has his own toothbrush there. I mean, I don't know anybody that would brush their teeth with someone else's toothbrush. He says he goes upstairs to brush his teeth, implying he has a toothbrush there, which also implies he's obviously been there to stay overnight on multiple occasions because I've never left a toothbrush at a friend's house, you know, for from one night. So how do you not know where you're at if you're there so often that you have a toothbrush in the bathroom and you can just walk upstairs and brush your teeth there? Unless you're brushing your, your teeth with someone else's toothbrush. So he was going up to your bathroom? Mine was upstairs. I mean, I assume he was staying in my, in my room. I mean, that's just what I'm guessing. We went into the conversation of the 911 call, which I've already shared on episode one. Then the conversation turned to the experts that have weighed in on this case. I mean, that's the thing is these experts, they don't have a dog in the hunt. My favorite saying... Well, they're also not going to sign their name and their entire life's reputation and work just to do somebody a favor. Well, I mean, not to belittle Christian, but not for Christian Andriaki. I mean, you know what I'm saying? To them, he's just another case to some degree down here in Mississippi. He's not their best friend's child. He's not. I mean, there's no reason to do a favor for us. And everybody else, though, that is fighting so hard to make this a suicide, they all have something to lose or gain if this goes the other way. Um, I mean, I would almost, you could almost go down the row on Facebook and see who's liking these posts and go, okay, that's a Cassie supporter. Okay, that's Dylan's mother. That's Dylan's aunt. That's Whitley's mother, Whitley's aunt, Frankie's friend, Frank, you know. And there's a connection to that little group of people who either one would probably be arrested or it's a family member of someone who's going to be arrested, or it has something to do with the election. I'd also like to note that there's not a single expert that they have found that is willing to sign their name saying that it's suicide, except for a medical examiner who no longer has a job. Her work has been called into question multiple times, and I felt thought it was interesting that after Christian's case, there was a high, I say high profile, high profile um kind of similar situation in Laurel, Mississippi, with a young lady who was dating an older, wealthy man who she um, was shot in his garage, and in her car, and they said that she killed herself. It was a lot of discrepancies, a lot of weird things surrounding it. It went to trial. Fuentes, and I may be totally saying her name wrong, but she was the uh, medical examiner. And I thought that it was interesting because this was after it went to trial after Christian's case had been on Crime Watch. And in Crime Watch, Dr. Arden had said, a medical examiner cannot determine if it was suicide. It is a gunshot wound to the head. That is the cause of death. You can't say it was a suicide because a gunshot wound to the head could be a suicide or a homicide. So... In her case, that is the exact word she used for 
her on trial was, all I can say is she died of a gunshot wound to the head. So I found it interesting that in Christian's case, she rules it suicide by gunshot you know, wound. In this case, after she has kind of by, went by a nationally known forensic pathologist has gone on TV talking about this autopsy she did, she now changes her wording to say, you know, and it was almost an identical case. You know, it was like the gun was on the wrong side of the body. There was, um, there had been some text messages in the past on her phone. She had been in counseling for, you know, for depression. There had been some, but at that time, there was no indication there, you know, again, everything pointed toward homicide. And, but she used that same wording that Arden had used in Crime Watch. So I thought, well, maybe she learned something. You know, if nothing else that comes of this, maybe she learned that it's not your job to determine if it's suicide or homicide, is your job is to say, how did they die? Also, when you mentioned depression, she also says that Christian had a history or recently been depressed. There's nothing to end it. Like, you can't, you can't tell that someone's depressed from an autopsy. You can't tell that somebody was ever depressed from an autopsy or that they were recently depressed. He has no medical history. He's never been to any sort of therapy or counseling or prescribed any kind of antidepressants. There's nothing to indicate that he has ever, in his entire life, been depressed at any point in time. So how she found this information and then went as far as to actually write it down in one of her reports and then base that as her reasoning to say it was suicide, I don't know. Because you can't say, well, it's the text messages. At that time, she didn't have text messages. There were no text messages. So the only thing that she had to go by was, I guess... That people were saying it was suicide already. Well, just that Whitley and Dylan had said, supposedly had said that he had been depressed. Well, you know, but yet you tell everybody else that he had not been depressed when when the detective asked her. Well, no, I don't think so. That people were saying it was suicide already. I think it was more like a cookie-cutter thing, like... The police said it, or the people who brought it said the police said ruled it a suicide. So I'm just going to write things down and just fill out this form to say suicide and get this over with. So I know from having other cases with medical examiners, there are some medical examiners that will write down whatever the police tell them. Let's say the chief of police called and said it's suicide. They're going to write down it's suicide. Oh, and by the way, he was depressed. They'll write that down too. Years ago, a medical examiner who families from, and I may be, I may have not all of my facts correct, but most of this is correct. There was a medical examiner that was being accused by families of doing that very thing, putting down the cause of death as what the DA, and it wasn't just Bilbo, it was several counties, DAs in different counties, that this was being alleged. And so, actually, Bilbo had Jim Hood to do an opinion on whether or not autopsies had could be released in case files because they said that that way, of course, it was to protect the DAs and people from being sued because if they couldn't get the, the families couldn't get the autopsies, of course, it would be harder for them to sue unless, of course, they just had an attorney. So they actually, Jim Hood, put out an opinion saying that autopsy reports were excluded from FOIA because it was part of work product and that they didn't have to be released for FOIA request. So I thought it was very interesting that all that was thrown out the window for Christian's case. And it was Jim Hood, who was the attorney general still. It was Bilbo's office 
that was even though he wasn't DA, it was now Cassie, but it still might as well say Bilbo's office. And now they feel like both of these people who had gone the extra mile to say autopsy reports shouldn't be released to the public, they're the ones pushing to release it and do release it. This is where we stop. We'll pick up the case file conversation later. Thank you all for joining Ray and her family to stand up against this behavior. I will go back to the forensics next week with Elena Burroughs, Mark Gillespie, and Mike Martinez. The t-shirt, hashtag, not suicide proceed, goes to help Ray advertise Christian's case and also the production of the podcast. If you have a problem with helping Ray, don't buy them. For those who have bought them and sent pictures, thank you. If you or someone you know is dealing with suicidal ideation or is actively thinking about taking their life, please call the National Suicide Hotline at one 800 273-8255. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, join Patreon today. Go to patreon.com and donate without warning to help us to continue giving voices to victims and families who have been silenced. Join today and help justice be served. Without warning, executive director, executive producer, and host, Sheila Waisaki. Mix and mastering by Resonant Recording. And announcer, Tim Evans. Thank you for listening to Without Warning. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a quick review to help others discover it too. If you or someone you know knows something about this case or the people involved, you could submit tips by calling 1-888-599-0008 or email tips at sheilawaisaki.com.